Think of a hospital. The patients are dying like flies. Every method is tried to make things better. It's no use. Where does the sickness come from? It comes from the building. The building is full of poison. So it is in the religious sphere. One person thinks that it would help if we got a new hymnal, another a new altar book, another a musical service, and so on. It's no use. It comes from the building. The whole pile of lumber of an established church, which from time immemorial has not been ventilated, spiritually speaking, the air confined in this lumber room has developed poison. And for this reason, the religious life is sick or has died out. started last fall it was like it seemed like such a long journey even to just get through the first record and now here we are in season two and it feels like we're definitely we're like flying now off and running exactly yeah Yeah. as of recording this we're over seven thousand downloads and hundreds of repeat downloader subscribers yeah it's uh humbling to say the least so thanks for coming along folks yeah. If you're just tuning in um, and you skipped season one because you just really wanted to hear about Cash for Us the Foxes, welcome to Us Without Them. Uh, this is a podcast about me without you. Um, I'm Stephen. I'm a musician and a, an educator. I'm Joel. Uh, I'm a uh, college religion professor um, who writes about uh, religion and culture and philosophy of religion and that kind of thing. And I'm Nick. I'm an Uber fan uh, and a studier of culture. And you'll hear me reference Tolkien a lot because <laughs> for some reason I think he applies to everything, probably because he does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so here we are uh, at what I think is what a lot of people would say is their favorite Me Without You album. Yeah. Um, if, especially if they, you know, and, and well, no, I was, I mean, I was about to say, if they started listening from the beginning, but that's not even true. I think that even people who came to the band later uh, still find that this record is their, um, is their favorite. And I don't know if it is my favorite. I I'll just, you know, to kind of get us into the discussion of, of the overview. I fell off just a little bit for a moment with me without you when this record Came Interesting. Out. Yes. My interests were, I was like right around that age. I was 21 and music for me was changing like very rapidly. I, I felt old, <laughs> which is like <laughs> at, now that I'm almost 40, like it's such a dumb thing to, to, 
think about yep. that like why did i think music was over when i was 21 but i did i mean and and i'll say more about this in in a little bit when we kind of get into the the context of the scene but a lot of things were changing in underground music um around this time and i there were a lot of bands from my late teens and 20 <laughs> that i kind of stopped listening to for a little while and um I mean, I still, I still went and saw them on this tour. It mm -hmm. was uh, an amazing show. Um, I still bought the record or the CD, but it, I, I, it didn't. For some reason, I, I didn't feel grabbed by by me without you again until Brother Sister, and then I went back to this record and was like, okay, yes, now I get it. And I don't, yeah, I mean, it's in some ways, I think. I think about it now and I think it's was maybe just a fluke of my my age and how old I was sure. at that time and and just being you're kind of in a weird place in your your life at that age like finishing college and all of that so but yeah so I would say brother sister is probably my favorite record but I do appreciate this record a lot and especially listening to it as much as I have over the last yeah like, two months three months I I definitely have come to appreciate it uh, a a lot more. Definitely. What about you guys? Where does this rank for you? Catch for us the foxes. Um, to me, is where Mew without you establishes their classic sound. Yes. And so definitely, definitely trying to keep the the big picture view in mind. It it just feels really essential. Um, yes. since we started this project, I've thought through like ranking all seven albums in my head and the, the order keeps shifting. So I don't have a reliable, like set me of too. favorites or sure. not favorites and whatever. But to me, what was so surprising about this when it came out was the simultaneous incongruity of the vocal style and, and what the instruments were doing but also the perfect match that those made. Sure. I had never heard anything else like it. And I'm not sure that anyone else had either. I think that's what makes this, this album so special. Totally agree. Because when A to B life came out and, and I got into it, I, it was exciting. And to me, it seemed like this was almost like a, they were borderline kind of like a metalcore band. Not that like the riff sounded like that, but the vocal style was so aggressive. Sure. And I'd been to a bunch of shows and I didn't have a huge amount of context for what all the different subgenres were on the menu at the time. I just knew like I went to shows with people screaming and this seemed like one of those. And yeah. So when the second album came out and the sound of the instrumental part of the music had mellowed so much, it was still heavy hitting, but there's something about it that didn't seem so aggressive. It didn't seem so desperate as A to yeah. B life. And yet the vocals were still this really powerful, strong sort of force of nature. It, it just yeah. it was just such a surprise. So the sound of it struck me immediately when it came out. And and it just felt like a revelation. I think I've said something like that about it before, but um but the lyrics, too, for me, I'm sure many of you listening have had an experience like this the first time you heard this album, but it spoke to 
uh, struggles that I had with within myself, within the folks that I related to, that uh, that gave language to things that I didn't know how to talk about. Yeah, and it was such uh, a help to me um, just mm. to have these words lodged in my mind in a way that I could just listen to the album, but I could also ruminate on these words, think about it, and just let it become part of me. And so I'm really thankful for this album, um, and and I still. Like it's still exciting to listen to now, 18 years later. Uh, so, yeah. And, you know, having fairly recently come from the start of the farewell tour and to have them open with my exit was just incredible. Like that, that latter half of the album just has this, we'll talk about it when we get there, but this is the overview episode. So there's, there's movements in this album that are akin to, but different from what we get in a to B life. Like a to B life has, I kept using the phrase suites of songs that feel very like Beatlesy. like this mm-hmm. set of songs are interconnected. This set right. of songs are interconnected. And that kind of happens on this album in a, in a different, more, um, pure feeling way like there aren't necessarily interconnected lyrics per se but you know the first three tracks have have a certain tone to them and then you get leaf which is like a really interesting transitionary piece and then you get into more of these like feel things feel more stretched out and pulled out and there's an openness and it 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 feels almost like it was recorded in a cathedral if mm. you know what I mean, like there's a yeah. real there's a real openness to the sound of it rather than a, a tight closeness, yeah. um, which is really exciting um, and adds to the energy in a an expansive way. And we talked about this a little bit recently, at least internally, the overlap with this album and the post hardcore scene, but also the opening up of indie music in general and, and yeah. where non hardcore things are going. And I know, Joel, you're going to talk a lot about that. So I won't, I won't steal your thunder too much, but just to say it has a feel of epicness that goes beyond things that fit into the post hardcore or metal core or whatever stuff. There's an epicness to it that goes much beyond that, almost into prog music. Right. Well, maybe that's a good, I think that's a good transition point to just kind of talk a bit about the cultural history in a sense. Sure. And where, me without you is sort of situated. And I just want to say a very quick philosophical word, and I promise I will not make this too uh, collegiate <laughs> for those of oh, you who are like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, but, but I, I just, I want to just say that, that the way that I think about these kinds of connections is not so much like a family tree, right? When you, when you're talking about genres and bands and influences and that kind of thing, a lot of people think of a tree, right? Yeah. Where you have like, like if you're talking about punk or you have the Sex Pistols or the Ramones or something are like the trunk of the tree. And yeah. then there's like all these different branches. Um, and I think the problem with that way of thinking about things is that culture just doesn't actually work that way. Correct. <laughs> I, don't think yeah. you, I don't think you have these kind of neat, gene, perfectly genealogical connections like between bands. I think that you have connections sometimes that are really surprising. And so I think a better metaphor is one that the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze uses, which is that of the rhizome, 
a rhizome, uh, as Nick could tell you, because he's our, <laughs> our resident horticulturist, is, is essentially a root system, right? Yes. So, you know, a, a root system has all kinds of random connections, and there isn't one single entry point. I yes. think that's the key, is that there's really a, a plethora of entry points um, and a plethora of connections. And sometimes those connections are surprising. And I think that's useful for me without you, especially because I think, Stephen, what you were touching on is really important, right? That there was this kind of, uh, they they really, they did catch something with this album, no, no pun intended there. <laughs> it wasn't foxes. Um, it, was, it was a sound. You know, you're absolutely right that this is where they homed in on what be what was their sound and i think that aaron really homes in on what will become his cadence his delivery and it is different yes. from a to b life and and we'll you know we can talk about that more when we get into the the song episodes mm -hmm. but the other thing is just kinds of scene connections, musical connections. So let me just kind of like lay the the scene here yeah. for everybody. So at the turn of the millennium, right, you have uh, a number of uh, emo, post-hardcore type bands um, that are, you know, thriving, right? So you have bands like Small Brown Bike and Planes Mistaken for Stars and also the Get Up Kids. With those, those are the more, you know, Planes Mistaken for Stars, Small Brown Bike, the more grade, the more screamy kind of bands, right, in the late yeah. 90s, early 2000s. The Me Without You with A to B Life is sort of, I think, akin to in a lot of ways. And then you have all, you know, bands like the Get Up Kids and Saves the Day and Promise Ring and um, mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of, of those more sorts traditional of emo. emo, right, and Midwestern emo, East Coast, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And uh, in the early 2000s, a lot of those bands either broke up and formed more indie bands. So like you have, mm -hmm. for example, Jaw, yeah, you have the Promise Ring forming Maritime, Jawbreaker forms Jets to Brazil. Um, and even the bands that didn't break up. And I mean, well, you know, Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids formed the New Amsterdams, which is a very funky right. indie project. Um but even the Get Up Kids records that came out in 2001 and then 2004, I think is when Guilt Show came out, um, those are very much indie rock records. They're not yeah. really emo records anymore. They take this very hard indie turn, Saves the Days in Reverie, also very much an indie mm -hmm. record. Uh, Mock Oranges, Mind Is Not Brain, The Promise Rings, Woodwater, 2002. Like all of those records, if you you know, go back and you listen to those and compare them to the those bands' earlier records, like there's a very, very marked difference. And yeah. so you have really the end of late 90s, some people would call it second or, you know, second wave emo, um, yeah. and the ascendancy of something else, right? So in 2003, you have Fallout, uh, Fallout Boys, first <laughs> full length or second, yeah. I can't take this to your grave, I think. You that have my, first, yeah. my Chemical Romances, first record comes out around that time. And then by 2005, both of those bands are like massive, right? So you massive. have this rise yeah. of, of mall emo, right? 
between 2003 and 2005, Catch Us the Foxes comes out in 2004. You also have the beginnings of uh, a kind of, I mean, some people would, uh, well, I don't know if farm emo was really a, t- a term at this time, but you, you have this. Do you want to um, get it started? Yeah, well, I mean, so Saddle Creek Records in Omaha, Nebraska, I think is, you know, I, I would say they're very much responsible for that aesthetic sure. and and sort of these kind of country-ish crossover bands like Pine Grove and stuff that are around now. But if you yeah. think about like Bright Eyes is for uh, just the, the name of that record, Fevers and Mirrors, says 1893, right? It just, <laughs> it says that to you. And, and there are tracks on that that have names like a spindle, a clock, a calendar, right? Yep. Like there's a, a deep 19th century thing going on with that record in particular, right? Yeah. Um, and and even like, uh, you know, some other Connor Ober's product, Desperacitos and, and stuff. Cursive, also a Saddle Creek band. The Ugly Organ, which came out in 2003, yeah. also has like a very 19th century fairy tale uh, yes. quality to it that yes. is intentional. Um, and so you, and then of course you have more uh, indie rock bands like the Decemberists, mm-hmm. right? That are drawing on a kind of maritime 19th century aesthetic, castaways and cutouts, or cutouts and castaways, right? Castaways and cutouts, castaways and, and, then, and, and picaresque. Her, yeah, Her Majesty, the Decemberists, and picaresque all have are all swimming and, in that water. And the yeah. and the I, to me the crane wife. Which is, is the crowning jewel 2006 of that six or five? Yeah, is like really. There's, I mean, there's songs about the Civil War and <laughs> all <laughs> right. kinds of stuff, right? So there's there's the this opening up of this 19th, this kind of aesthetic of the 19th century, and Me Without You is definitely in that water. Um, although you know, with this record, it's maybe a bit more subtle than I think mm-hmm. it it is in. Uh, definitely the next two records, um, and well, and certainly ten the stories. Three. The next three, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but it's there. I, th- I think that it's mm-hmm. there, and definitely the way that they, um, you know, the way that they dressed and and you know all this stuff uh, kind of evokes that. And what's interesting is that none of those other bands that are playing with this nineteenth century. I mean, maybe you could say Cursive and Me Without You have some. I think tonal similarities specifically ugly organ. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you you know, but, but they, but me without you is definitely doing something that is, that is different. And, and I will say that the, the other kind of piece that I would throw in here, which Nick, you mentioned is the, the way that they utilize the sounds of Mm post-rock and post-punk. So one interesting comparison that I would urge people to make is between me without you and the band Interpol. Um, those <laughs> yes. are two bands that maybe people would not put in the same category. Um, but if you listen to turn on the bright lights, which is Interpol's first record, which actually came out in 2002, same year as a to B life and compare the music to catch for us, the foxes, you will hear a lot of similarities. Like if you listen to both of those records without any of the vocals, mm-hmm. you might think that they're the same band. Um, mm-hmm. They're very, very similar musically. And I think that that is 
just radically different. I mean, Cursive was not doing that. No, right? they weren't. The, You're right. The Tim Casher's music writing and guitar playing were still very much emo, right? It's just he made this like huge concept album out of it. Yeah. But Me Without You is like playing with reverb and delay and staccato triads in in the a way that is like very, very similar to a lot of this kind of like new wave of post-punk bands like Interpol, yes. a lot of stuff that was coming out on Merge Records and Matador and and um that kind of thing was yeah. in this uh was in this vein. Um and I mean even Saddle Creek too, I mean the band The Faint, right? Was kind oh, of man, like, I forgot about the Faint. Yeah. That's a good that's so, a great one. That's yeah. and that's like that's a little bit later, but but you so me Without You is, is pulling on that as well. Um, mm-hmm. And you have all of these later emo bands like Moving Mountains and Law Dispute and Gates and that are much more explicitly post-rock bands um, with an emo sound. I mean, I, I will say, I have to say that the Appleseed cast hmm. predates Me Without You in, in doing this. Like if you listen to Low Level Owl Volumes 1 and 2, um, and even Mare Vitalis, their second record, like they're doing this post-rock thing, like where you can compare their music to like explosions in the sky and you'll see a sure. lot of similarities sure. there. But, but that, I mean, that's a whole aesthetic universe, right? That is deeply rich and complex. And yes. Me Without You is in many ways at the forefront of that. And they are bringing something new to the scene at a time when um when a lot of other bands were like falling off right and just one more thing one more wrinkle to this um, <laughs> in 2004 christian metalcore was exploding like mm-hmm. under oaths um they're only chasing safety came out in 2004 huge huge record um, super influential on non-Christian music. Same yep. with, uh, you know, Norma Jean's uh, Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child came out in 2002, so earlier. But still, like, you, so you have all this, you know, the Christian metal, metal core scene, Under Oath, Hates the Day, these kinds of bands, it really starting to explode, the, that solid state stuff. And yeah. Me Without You is still, right, distinct from that even, right? So you have this, like, uh, it's they really are a kind of singularity in this moment. Yeah, they're they're, they're an island floating floating amidst the sea of all of these other ideas, and and I'll go back to the rhizomes in a little bit here. But yeah, Stephen, I think. Oh, I just wanted that. to to. I mean, I haven't thought about the faint in a long time. <laughs> just to like kick off that stone somewhere, um, something that that band was doing in the midst of all the rest of the scene was that they weren't only being aggressively sad, although they were doing that too, but they were being aggressively sad and also funky at the same time. Like you can dance to that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's something I think that is really special about Catch for Us the Foxes is that it's like, it's kind of the grooviest thing that Me Without You ever did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, you're you're not wrong. Wow. That's great. Just to bring the rhizome metaphor back uh, 
not quite full circle, but the really cool thing about that metaphor is a lot of plants, and especially invasive plants, uh, which don't let me get on that soapbox, I'll never get off. <laughs> a very small piece of the rhizome of the root system can lead to an explosion of that particular plant in an area. And mm. so what's really cool about comparing the output of this entire era we're talking about, well, we'll expand it to 2002 to like 2006 or eight, even yeah. just that milieu that everyone's swimming in it makes total sense that like, oh, I heard one Me Without You song and it stuck with me enough that it influenced me over here, even though I, as a member of indie band X, you know, on, on Madura Records, sound nothing like them. There's enough of an influence there. And that works inversely as well towards Me Without You. Yeah. But that's why it's it's absolutely perfect. It's not, you know, I live in the Cleveland area, so... I go to the Rock Hall. I've been to the Rock Hall twice. Um, <laughs> the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, which shows it as a linear progression because that's a useful way for, I mean, you have to walk through halls somehow. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, sorry, guys, for not taking you there. It's just expensive to get in. But <laughs> it's it's really fun because they do a really great job of, I would say, over half of the, the beginning area is all of the precursors to rock. So you're... You're learning about bluegrass, R&B, soul music, jazz music, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all stacking on top of each other. But it's not, there was the jazz period, and then there was the rockabilly period, and then there was the rock period, and right. then there was proto-punk and punk. It, it didn't work that way. Right, yeah. And like The Who was influencing the band Death when Death was essentially not quite inventing punk but they were getting there point being tiny little pieces little seeds or little pieces of the rhizome can really influence this whole network of of what we're talking about yeah totally so um, one of the things that sets apart catch for us the foxes from a to b life musically speaking that you definitely feel when you listen to it, but if you're not looking for it, or if you're not sitting down at a piano and trying to map it out, <laughs> you may not notice, um, is that Catch Rest the Foxes judiciously avoids leading tone. So a leading tone in uh, a major or a minor scale is just the note that leads back to home. Like, as like you, you know, that's a leading tone okay. back to what we call the tonic again at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Same thing works in minor. Hung out of the leading tone there for a second. Yeah. Catch for us. The Foxes doesn't have those. It has whole steps leading up to the tonic instead of half steps. So interesting for and. Virtually the entire album hangs out, regardless of what pitch is the tonal center, almost the entire thing hangs out in what you can call a natural minor scale. What it lacks... ...is that half-step pull up to the top. So... In the last album, I, I really tried to, to make a point of how significant that was at the end of Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt. 
that we had. Right, right. That leading tone really makes it feel like something sort of significant and of a moment is happening and also yeah. like very sad. Yeah. 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 Right. And there's just something about having that whole step below the tonic instead of mm, that is is just softer it's easier mm -hmm. on the ears it doesn't feel like the stakes are so high and it and it like it's again I and mean, much of this has to do with the interaction between dan's bass playing and ricky's drumming but like yeah it's just kind of groovy like it just it just kind of feels easier it feels more danceable it doesn't feel like the weight of the world is hanging on every musical gesture that happens mm. which is so ironic when you put it underneath some of the stuff that aaron is shouting about on this album yes i mean he's yes he's at the point of life and death literally several times over the course of this and yep. yet what the band is doing underneath is shaking their booties and having a good time. Like this is like a very <laughs> surprising combination. Does that does yeah. that testify to you all? Does that sound yeah. like what actually happens here? <laughs> testify. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I think yeah. that the, I think that that's right. I mean, I definitely hear what you're saying about like lacking those leading tones. I mean, we talked a lot about um, the the modes that come from like the Middle East. Oh, right? for that sure. Are that you know, that oh, like have the Andalusian cadence. The Andalusian yeah. cadence. That's yep, what yeah. I was thinking of. Yes. Right. Where, where that, that gives A to B life, like a particular sound that mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. does. You're right. It, it does ratchet up the tension. Yeah. And this album in some ways feels a little bit easier. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that coupled with the fact that Aaron's vocal delivery, while he's still shouting, he is not screaming as much right on oh. this record and there's if you plenty compare, of like well i was going to just say if you compare a song like gentlemen like the verses of gentlemen or i never said that i was brave where if you could imagine those on being on catch Frost the foxes like compare that to the beginning of they torches together right mm -hmm. where there's like a similar sort of like downness like in the music but the delivery is of the vocal is very, very different. Um, like there's still, mm -hmm. there's still some grit and, and growl in his voice. Yeah. Um, but it is a bit more sing songy and not yeah. as screamy as we've said. And we'll talk about this when we get to torches together next time, but it, it's the cadence that, that is Aaron Weiss. Like when you hear yes. it, you know, yes. Yeah, and, and just to kind of pick up from where both of you are going, there's a certain almost mellow drama to A to B life that's just oh, absent yeah. from the, like, the, the, we talked about maturity a lot last season, and in a sense, you get it right off the rip with this. It's just, it feels more, I know we were just talking about incongruous sounds and, and, and themes in this, but in a sense, it, it feels more, like the band is propping Aaron up when it needs to. And Aaron is propping the band up when it needs to versus the first album has a certain tendency that a lot of bands of this genre, general genre fall into, which is everyone's vying for being the coolest thing you're hearing <laughs> in a mm. sense. And, and this feels much more 
orchestral might be a little too big a word. It's but well balanced, at least. Well I mean, balanced. Every, everything yes. has its place. Uh, it's all sort of intricately pulled together. And some could say everything in its right place. Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, there's more room in it. Is that fair? I wonder I, I wonder if this is a good moment then to just bring up before uh, I forget the producer of this record, Brad. Yeah. Oh, yeah, please. Um, because I think a lot of that openness has to be attributable to him. So I think that, you know, most folks who are diehard Me Without You fans know that Brad Wood uh, is a music producer who famously produced uh, the first two Sunny Day Real Estate records, okay? Um, but, I mean, this guy is like one of the greatest rock producers uh, of all time. Um, yeah. So I, I won't, I'm not going to read off all of his credits because like Jay Robbins, he has hundreds of them. But his list of credits is, is a bit more diverse than Jay Robbins. So there's like three, I think, major categories of band that fall into his work. He has uh, a number of emo post-hardcore records, so Triple Fast Action. He did a number of Seam records, which is a sort of lesser known kind of indie emo band from the early 90s. Far, he did a Far record. Um Sensefield, uh, I think Sensefield's last, yeah, Living Outside, Sensefield's last record. So he has that. Then he has a number of like indie, post-rock, shoegazy kind of bands. Tortoise, The Sea and Cake. Uh, he did Hum's first record, Electra 2000. And then the third category is people like Liz Fair, Ben Lee, Veruca Salt, Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. So like he did Smashing Pumpkins Adore. So like bona fide alt rock superstars, right? Right. I th it just feels like that is the soil, like the that in which Catchfrost the Foxes grew the way that it did. Like just yeah. looking at this list, it makes so much sense to me, right? That yeah, okay, the more expensive expansive sound, the um sort of a less harshness, right? A little bit of more pop sensibility, right? Compared to A to B life. Like all of that, I think fits in very, very well with the way Brad Wood makes records and the, the kinds of records that he has made, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something that you mentioned, Nick, that I think Brad Wood probably had a lot to do with is the sense of um, changing environments on this album i guess is a way to put mm. it I mean, you could talk about spaces but we just use that to mean something in the arrangement but in the way that sometimes the music feels very close up and sometimes it feels at a distance and sometimes it feels like it's filling this very large cavernous room yes or it's like an inch from your face and you can't breathe like it goes it runs throughout all those kinds of imaginary environments which just makes it have a much more cinematic feel than A to B life, which more or less feels like it's happening in the same room the whole way through. 
Yeah, definitely. it has plenty of of dramatic elements in the story and in the delivery and in the musical materials. But in terms of the sonic spaces that it it invites you to imagine, I, I feel like this one just has more variety. Does that sound right? Definitely yeah. does. Yeah. I also just want to mention that Brad Wood produced the only Fire Theft album, right? Which was huh. Jeremy yeah. and its, you know, other project that came out like a couple years, like a year or two before this record. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know this for a fact or anything, but I would not be surprised if those guys, if me without you guys were listening to that record and like, sure. this is the person that needs to produce our next album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I could see that. Yeah. Well, and then it's also great. There's now, now that you've got my horticultural brain going, <laughs> it's also great to see Touche Amore is another band that is clearly influenced by them. And Brad Wood did there is, is survived by. Uh, so it's, mm, it's yeah. just great to see, which came out a year after 10 stories, which by the way, I don't think we mentioned Brad Wood did this album up through 10 stories. So Yes, they yes. were swimming in the Bradwood water right. and clearly being influenced by his changing perspectives of what a well-produced album is. Yeah. But clearly, I, I'm not going to claim he's the secret member of me without you, but like he was obviously influential in the direction of their sound. And that oh, totally. have to highlight that. Yeah, absolutely. Not so much like what is all of it about? Maybe we can we can try yeah, to land so, the plane there later. Yeah, I was going to say, spoiler alert, everybody. We don't necessarily have like a narrative structure for this <laughs> record. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, but but what are the so, sort of recurring images or ideas that you all notice that span across multiple songs that aren't aren't just contained in, in one place? Well, so I, I think that. One thing that I'll say is that this record feels more, uh, I don't want to say more religious, but sort of more explicit, I think, in its religious expression, right? You Hmm. hear Aaron saying things with this kind of, with an openness that you don't necessarily find in A to B life. I mean, in A to B life, you have you have certain lines, right? Jesus have mercy on us, right? Ending the record, you know, other. Uh, How long, my lord? Right. Yes. Yeah. Song, exactly. Yeah. Right. But on Catch Us the Foxes, you you have, um, I mean, carousels. I think comes to mind. That's probably from, the most explicit. Right. Um, I mean, well, that and forward letter part two. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, both of those, right? You you yeah. have just the whole, the, the songs seem to be about a kind, it, there's just, there's an openness in those lyrics that I don't think you necessarily find in, in A to B life. In A to B life, you have uh, a lot more certainty expressed. And that certainty, 
I think you you start off, I mean, I wouldn't say Torches Together is full of certainty, but, you know, you start off with some something a little more confident in terms of yeah. Yeah. religion. And then as the album goes on, I think that confidence begins to waver sort of openly. And and you don't, like I say, you don't you don't get that uh, in A to B. So if I could just pick up on that thread real quick. Sure. Um, I think that the confidence is, I'll, I'll be a little blunt with the, the metaphor, like if the light that is the co- the communal torch, right? If, if the torches are burning together, that's where the confidence is. And as soon as Torches Together ends, we get a diatribe on kind of hating yourself for becoming remotely famous and the individualism that comes with that and like the, the feelings of self and, and ego being a problem there. And we just see that progression continue. So I think the confidence is there, but they've lost the light. Mm-hmm. The, the narrator has kind of lost, I shouldn't say the narrator, cause I really don't think there's one narrative theme here, but the general direction is this, as I develop as an individual Am I losing my connection to these others? And and we'll get there as we talk about each individual song and when we get into, you know, his Yeah, his I mean what time one thing I'll way. say about the confidence, I mean, like you said, it's it's not the same kind of individualistic confidence Correct. that you find in A to B life, right? There's right. um you, you know, there's this movement from uh, a kind of individual certitude in A to B life that wavers a bit, but, you know, you, we talked about many examples of that, um, to a song that is about, right, a, a Christian commune, essentially, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, and the confidence coming from being in community, which you don't have any, any at all uh, uh, references to being in community uh, on right. A to B life. I mean, none. No. So... Yeah. There's like three to five characters and really two of those characters are not really there or are right. spiritual in presence. And yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a major shift at the beginning uh of this album. Mm-hmm. And then and then another major shift, like you're mentioning, Nick, from track one to track two, there's this drop off from this sort of big rush of excitement in this collective communal space into just abject loneliness and (laughs) and so that that i think is is one of the things we're going to be tracking this whole way through is elements of being alone and being together Mm. and how those dynamics play out Mm -hmm. and i think that there's a lot of um rich sort of subtext to what it means to be alone uh, before God, what it means to be in a community of faith that is messy in it. Well, it's messy in real life anyway, but it's messy in the way that these songs try to grapple with those feelings. Uh, and yeah, given yeah. some of the material that, that I suspect is reasonable evidence that, that is influencing Aaron's thought process at this time, both, both the communities that he's participating in to the degree that we know anything about it as well as uh, the books that he's reading again, to the degree we know anything about them. Um, yep. I mean, you, you have uh, this, this Christian commune, the, the Bruderhof community, which we'll talk much more about next episode. 
that Aaron's very interested in, uh, is wanting to get involved with. And then you also have, he's still reading Kierkegaard, who <laughs> is obsessed with the idea of the individual. I mean, he has this whole uh, discourse uh, that, he, that he calls the crowd is untruth, uh, that I think <laughs> has maybe something to say uh, to Aaron's feelings on this album about his sort of distrust of this collective at the yeah. same time that he's wanting so desperately to feel like he's a part of a community. So we're going to, I think we're going to see those dynamics play out in a lot of topsy turvy ways over the course of these songs. Yeah, absolutely. There's a really strong, you know, falling in line with the crowd is something you clearly see as a problem with them just aesthetically. Yeah. Like, like at every turn, this band I shouldn't say every turn, but at many turns, they're doing something different or not directly in line with everyone else. Like even down to who they're bringing on their tours with them. I feel like they're sometimes like, I mean, where did that come from? Nobody gives out awards for this, but I feel like me without you should have some sort of lifetime achievement award on being like the least trendy act to make it the longest. Yeah. Yeah. Which might have something to do with, you know, I, I don't think they ever wanted to get signed to a major label, but like we brought up the Decemberists, specifically the album, The Crane Wife. That was their first album on Capitol Records. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was like, that's like the crowning jewel of this indie movement of bringing up, you know, mid to late 18th century, like maritime mm-hmm. iconography throughout their lyrics and their and their songwriting. And that's when they moved from indie labels to a massive major label. Right. So I like how interesting and me without you probably could have done that, but they didn't. And in that way, they avoided the trends and avoided the being pushed by their producers typically yeah, and managers to fit into a trend. I want to make a point and I <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to put on my Stephen hat for a moment here <laughs> and, and uh, make a point that maybe is going to see seem too far flung. I've said I, I have a PhD in, in religion before and I wrote my dissertation on mysticism, broadly speaking, but more specifically, it was about how uh, essentially how theology changes over time, like doctrinally. Like what is considered to be authoritative actually changes over time and how that happens, according to this one theologian I was writing about, right, is through this relationship between what what this theologian Ernst Trolch calls the mystic type and institutional forms of Christianity, right? So the ch- mm. not just the Catholic Church or something like that, but like institutional authority. Um, and basically the long and the short of it is, is that in both cases, right, both are trying to square what they think the like essential form of Christianity is, right? They have their idea of what the essence of Christianity is. The mystic comes up with an idea that is typically uh, runs counter in some way to the institution, right? Which the institution sees as a threat. The institution tries to do something, right, about this. I mean, people like, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, for instance, right, 
were rejected by the Catholic Church at first. Right, the Catholic mm-hmm. Church saw his message of, you know, the gospel should transform the world as a kind of threat to their mission because for the church in the 13th century, it wasn't about transforming the world. It was about just being in compromise with the world, right? You didn't have to transform right. the world. You you have the the monks and their abbots, they're doing their religious thing and you have all the lay people, they make babies. I just leave it at that, right? And yep. and Francis said, "No, that's not what the gospel message is. And so eventually the Catholic Church just says, okay, well, you, you'll you be your own order of, of priests, yeah. right? And that's how they deal with it, right? They just yeah. make the Franciscan <laughs> order, right? And compare that, though, to someone like Martin Luther, right? Mm-hmm. Luther comes along and says, you guys have salvation all wrong, right? Now, it's controversial, to say the least, to call Luther a mystic. Many <laughs> Lutherans would not call Luther a mystic. Throughout Luther, the history of Lutheran theology, mysticism has been denigrated and and rejected and so forth um, in a lot of ways. Uh, but that's you know beside the point, I guess. Uh, the the point is that right Luther came up with this radically new idea. The Catholic Church said no, 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 goodbye, you're excommunicated, right? And mm-hmm. eventually that led to a new institutional form, right? Yeah. The the Protestant Reformation, right? The Lutheran Church, mm-hmm. then Calvinism. I think that the you know the the common thread in this way of of thinking about you know new religious ideas and and old ones and so forth right is this desire for some kind of authentic expression right trying to find some way to be true to what the mystic thinks is the actual gospel message right and right. feeling that conviction so strongly that they are willing to go against what the institution says, right? Because mm-hmm. in their mind, the institution is wrong, yeah. <laughs> right? right. Um, and I mean, you see this happening right now with issues revolving around the LGBTQ community, right? You have mm-hmm. um, obviously conservative Christians who are saying all kinds of horrible things about mm-hmm. uh, LGBTQ folks. Um, and then y- you have Christians who... Uh, are both Christians who are members of the LGBTQ community as well as allies who are making their argument against the conservatives not by rejecting the Bible, but by embracing a more rigorous biblicalism, right? They are essentially, their argument is, no, no, you Southern Baptist Convention, you actually have interpreted the Bible incorrectly. Like we have the actual interpretation Right. This is how the Bible ought to be read. Um, and that's a really interesting move, I think. Right. Because, you you know, someone who is not religious, I think I, I encounter this in my classes all the time. They might assume, like, why why wouldn't they just abandon Christianity? And it's like, well, that's an option, too. Some people do that. Right. But you also have a lot of people who don't do that, who find ways to sort of change uh, or reconcile, I, I should say, their traditional values and these new cultural values um, in a way that feels authentic to to them, right? And so to bring this back to me without you, <laughs> I think that Aaron, uh, you know, in terms of not just his expression of, of faith, but a- as an artist, they they embody this mystical spirit in a lot of ways. Right. They are pushing against the institutional values, not only of, uh, you know, traditional Christianity, um, but also the music industry. Right. Yes. Um, 
you know, there, there's a sense in which they, yeah, they were uh, and are like mystics in that way, right? They just said, no, we're going to do it our way because that's what's authentic to us. And, and you know, I don't want to hear, I, I don't want people to hear me saying like, oh, you know, progressive Christians just say uh, that they're going to do things their way and tradition be damned. No, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying that they, that, that this form of Christianity, this mystical form, claims to have a greater access to the essence of Christianity, to be mm. more faithful to the tradition. Yeah. That's the claim, mm -hmm. right? I think that's what people miss quite often when they're thinking about progressive Christianity or something like that, right? That it's just some abandonment of the tradition. No, no, that's not what it is. It's a claim to be more traditional, right? That, that this kind of like uh, change in like, for example, embracing the LGBTQ community is what the Bible actually demands, right? That's right. the argument. Um, and so, you know, that I think that, that you, you see that so much in a lot of Me Without You's lyrics. I think you see that a lot in what Aaron is wrestling with in this album. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that he necessarily comes out <laughs> on the other end in this place where he's like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm like, okay with Christianity, you know, mm -hmm. it's a wrestling that is going to continue like through the rest of their discography. Right. You, um, you brought up St. Francis. I just want to say a word here that <laughs> I feel it. like St. St. Francis of Assisi is a figure that we're going to have to reckon with. Although very little on this album. So you can imagine a couple different metaphors here for a minute. Uh, that in the sort of performance that is this span of Me Without You's creative output, St. Francis is waiting in the wings, watching mm. Catch Rest the Foxes from the side of the stage. And when we get to Brother Sister, he's going to step out on stage and be a part of the action. But he's he's lingering there. And the band knows that he's sort of haunting the back corner of what they're doing. And he's about to come out. He's, <laughs> he's telling them to put more animals into their songs. Yes, he is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The bright colored fish uh, are just, but a foretaste. You don't have enough animals. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so that's one metaphor. Another metaphor you could think of, and this gets way weirder because St. Francis was a human being. You can imagine a human being stand by the side of a stage. Imagine though that he is some sort of substance. He is, green food color about to be dropped into a glass of water. You know, food coloring takes a while to sort of spread out. It's like somewhere in Catch Rest the Foxes, that drop of of Franciscan ethos hits the water, and then over the course of the next three albums, it's going to spread until it colors the whole thing. Um, yeah, wow. And by the yeah. time you get to Pell Horses, they dump the glass out and refill it with water again. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw that out there. And as as often, if ever, he needs to come up again this season, fine. Uh, but it won't be much. Um, <laughs> sure. But I think, I, I mean, that mystical orientation seems right to me about, about the kinds of things that are being expressed in this music. And to bring it back just for a moment to our, our pal Soren Kierkegaard, although he would not call himself a mystic and neither would anybody else because, because he lacked, I think that essential quality of, of that mystical experience of that overwhelming sense of being sort of lost in the divine. He was just a thorn in everyone's side. And and right. But he felt very much like he, he was all he could talk about was being faithful 
to what a Christian ought to actually be. And he would claim that he like, at least in one place, he says, like, I don't even claim that I am a Christian. I'm not good enough for that. But I'm telling you, all of right. you say that you are and you're definitely not like. Yeah, right. Right. And and I'll so <laughs> there actually was one person who thought Kierkegaard was a mystic, and that's Theodore Adorno. Um, Adorno. Really? Yes. Adorno I'm so intrigued. Wrote his, <laughs> he wrote his second dissertation, for those of you who don't know, Germans write two dissertations. Uh, the, the second is called the Habilitation shrift um but yeah he wrote he wrote his second dissertation on kierkegaard and mysticism directed by paul tillich really um yes isn't that wild i'm sorry people who are like who don't know who don't know (laughs) philosophy at all are like what the hell are they talking about (laughs) yeah no no so cue me yeah okay so uh, yeah sorry so adorno is um one of the fathers of what is called critical theory um Mm -hmm. And so he was a very, very super pessimistic dude, which is probably why he was drawn to Kierkegaard. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I mean, they're like of a piece. But one of the things that that is interesting, right, about both of them, right, is that they, in some ways, they are both interested in like what constitutes like an actual authentic expression of something, right? For, right. Um, you know, for Adorno, it's, it's in aesthetics, like what, what is actual art? Like what, I mean, Adorno was, um, was super critical of, for example, jazz music. (laughs) He thought jazz was garbage. He thought it was utter Mm -hmm. trash. And so people like, that's how pretentious this guy was. Right. Yeah. So, (laughs) and Kierkegaard, but Kierkegaard is the same. And, and I think that like, I mean, on my, on my reading, like if I were to apply my (laughs) dissertation and, and Ernst Trolch, who, you know, like Kierkegaard was a Lutheran, they, what they share, what they all sort of share, right, is this aversion to the kind of the status quo, right? For, mm-hmm. for Adorno, like, that's a problem because of capitalism, right? It, things get reified and commodified. So art ceases to be art when it becomes a commodity, right? So anything that right. is commodified and sold cannot be art, according to Adorno. Art has to escape that. So, and Marx, I mean, Marx thought the same, same thing. Right. But but, yeah. um, you know, in some ways, Kierkegaard is saying the same thing about religion. Right. And Christianity, like Christianity, actual expressions of faith cannot adhere to the institutional status quo. That's not good right. enough. Yeah. Um, it has to transcend that in some way. So even though Kierkegaard isn't talking about mystical experience per se, right, losing yourself in the divine, it does right. in some strange way fit the idea of the mystic the way that Trouch understands it right because Trulch isn't talking about divine mystical experience necessarily either i mean he's talking about like sociological mm. types yeah right sure um, sure okay you know it's, it's like a type a way of thinking a way of orienting yourself toward the institution like being a thorn essentially like mm-hmm. saying like no i don't accept this particular way of understanding you know, and and Trulch, I mean, the reason Trulch like kind of glommed onto this idea is because at the turn of the 20th century, when he was writing, um, you have the emergence of like spiritualism, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and like elites sort of deciding for themselves what Christianity was going to be, and he was trying to explain that because that was new, right? In, in yeah. the late 19th century, early 20th century, right? This idea that like. Christianity can just be whatever you want it to be. <laughs> like that didn't exist yeah. until until that time, right? Um, wow. 
so yeah, so so I think that there there are some I think interesting connections in some ways between Kierkegaard and and mysticism, or at least you know to just kind of like put this as simply as possible to get out of the jargon <laughs> philosophical speak for a minute. Yeah, right. What we're talking about right are people who ref, you know sort of refuse to conform, right? Yeah. And, and as a as a means of because it it violates their their sense of authentic self right yeah. at the end of the day mm-hmm. um and, and that's really what it ultimately comes comes down to to them for them and, and but sorry I, I i'm trying really hard not to complicate this it's not just <laughs> about like my personal preferences and and what i want authentic sure. self in the context of an expression of christian faith yeah Right. So it's not just, well, this is who I am and this is who I want to be. Right. It's this is who I think I should be in light of Christ. Yeah. Right. That's what it that's the authentic self. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And, yeah. Gotcha. And that to me is is the primary energy that drives this album. Yes. Is that yeah. impulse. Yes. And 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 the great drama of Catch for Us the Foxes is that. Aaron, through these lyrics, wants so badly to come in closer and closer contact with Jesus. And so he walks into the midst of a Christian community expecting that to happen. And then he takes another step forward and somehow he's standing there all alone and (laughs) disoriented and not knowing what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wow. And the way that he communicates that disillusionment and disorientation is not cynical. It's not bitter. It's not complaining to the people around him in a, in the way that like a kind of a general punk instinct is if, if there's something that's worth complaining about, you just you can address it head on in the lyrics and and you you nail it, you you point your arrow directly at it and you shoot. And and you try to maybe even stir up some sort of political movement around this thing. That doesn't mm-hmm. feel like what Aaron's doing. His his method is is much more Socratic almost. And I don't think about mm-hmm. Aaron Weiss as being anything much like Socrates, but in a way, like <laughs> Socrates is 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 annoying. Like I would not have wanted to have hung out with that guy. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> um and so, Anything, so I think I, I think Aaron's more like Diogenes. Okay. Right? <laughs> so Okay. Uh, for those who don't, yeah, sorry. They just, you know, Diogenes is the philosopher who walks around Athens naked, like spitting at people, throwing his his crap at people, <laughs> masturbating yeah. in the street, you know, holding up a lantern, uh, looking for one, uh, what is it, one one ethical man or one <laughs> one rational, some something like that. I don't and know. we'll we'll get to that image in a few in a in a few episodes. Right, but um, yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean maybe maybe yeah maybe he's not that maybe anyway, some combination between at, at the very least. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. The the fact that that when he sees something wrong, his response to it is to shrug and say, "What what." Like let's yeah. let's stop and let's ask a question about this right now, um, right? And and to first question himself, like that seems to be the impulse is oh there's something yes. wrong with this. Wait, what's wrong with me? And then that energizes this process that that never quite takes direct aim at, at anything external to himself. Yeah. yeah. 
Do you want to talk about the title of this album? Yeah. Please. <laughs> how it relates to any sure. of those ideas? Well, this is where I feel the least not prepared. I, I did plenty of research, but I'd rather sit back and listen to y'all talk about the direct biblical reference, which, Stephen, I know you have pulled I'm, up. I am more than happy to read my own hen scratch version of this. I could have just brought a Bible to my desk. <laughs> Fair. Let me just read the specific verse, please, that this comes from, and then put it in some context. So the title of the album is Catch for Us the Foxes. It's from a slightly longer statement. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin our vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. That is from the Song of Songs, 215, sometimes called the Song of Solomon. 215 is just the chapter and verse if you're looking for it. We don't need to get into a long diatribe about the Song of Songs right here, but just it's a weird book in the Bible. It's eight chapters of love poetry, um, which have had a wide variety of interpretive traditions over the last 3,000 years. <laughs> um, but within the context of the text of the book itself, there is dialogue back and forth between a male and a female character that's indicated, I think, maybe just by the way, like word forms. I, I don't read Hebrew, so I can't say definitively, but it's it's subtly indicated that there are at least two characters talking back and forth yeah. and sometimes maybe a crowd that's kind of commenting on, on the scene and what's going on. And so mm -hmm. uh, this is relatively early. It's maybe a quarter or so of the way through this book of poetry. And the, the book is not linear. It's not one story from start to finish. In some respects, it, it functions much the way album lyrics do, as we've been talking, where if you stand back at a distance, you can start to see a story emerge, but but there's not like a consistent sequence of events. Right. But in the beginning of this book, in the, in the first chapter, there's this woman who is saying something about being embarrassed that her skin is, has been darkened by the sun because she's had to work outside because she had these brothers who didn't want to work in the fields. They were lazy or they were angry at her and they sent her out to go work. And so she's neglected tending her own vineyard because she was helping out with her brothers. And then, so there's this image of the vineyard as being something to tend to. And it's sort of implicated that that also has a something about your own self. Um, yeah. And then in the second one, we have this male character coming in and he says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin. And some translations say our vineyards, some just say the vineyards. I'm not sure what the word is there. Our, our vineyards that are in bloom. So now, now she's been brought in with him and now they have collective, whatever you want to imagine that those are. And there's a whole gamut of, of interpretations about someone's spiritual condition or particular parts of their body or something of just about like their selfhood or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Our vineyards mean something to them, and the foxes are somehow a threat to the well-being of whatever the vineyard is. Does that sound right? Yeah. So, I mean, like, throughout the this chapter, you know, prior to this part, the she character has this long passage where she's talking about a lot of different fruit, right? She's talking, she says... Strength, strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, right? Um, she's talking about gazelles. Things are in bloom, 
right? See, the winter has passed, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, right? So there's there's blooming, right? The, mm-hmm. the fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. And, and I think that there's, you know, a pretty straightforward metaphor here for love, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. she connects that to the arrival of the he character, right? Earlier, she says, listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. And then the the he passage is interesting, right? Because he begins, so verse 14 says, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So she's hiding, right? Um, and mm-hmm. then he says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. So in I think that the blooming of the vineyard, right, in some ways could be or maybe should be understood as having to do with the the earlier metaphor, right, of their yeah. love, right? And yeah. that the foxes are, I mean, as kind of as you were alluding to, Stephen, they're, they are some some kind of nefarious thing, right? In, I mean, that are going to ruin that, right? As, yeah. as it says yeah. very straightforwardly. I'm, yeah, and I'm thinking like, I'm trying to think like what the connection is between that verse and the preceding verse about the, the she character hiding, right? The, my dove in the clefts of the rock in the hiding place on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice. And why, so it's like, it's almost like there's, there's some command, there's two commands here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's mm-hmm. the, let me hear your voice and see your face. And then mm-hmm. catch for us the foxes. Catch for us. Yeah. Who is, who's he invoking with the, the, I'm almost wondering is, is he trying to say catch for us the foxes to some, some other? Yeah. It's a, is, it's is, a great question. Directed to her? Yeah. We can we can tease out maybe what that means when we get to the Soviet and that it becomes yeah. an actual lyric. Yeah, because there's the that whole section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but here yeah. that that to me that's just an open question. Who is the subject of address with, with the command mm-hmm. "catch for us the foxes"? It's a. I mean, this book is full of just flipping metaphors instantly. As well, this album is full of metaphors flipping really quickly right. from one to the next. But it, it does seem like an odd switch from her addressing her mm-hmm. as a dove hiding in the cleft of a rock, which is a very like vulnerable, weak sort of an image into all of a sudden now grab these like dangerous carnivores, you know, right. creatures. It's almost, it's almost like, it. yeah, it's almost like he's saying you need to show your face and, and let your voice be heard so that you can catch the foxes, right? So yeah. that you, it's mm. almost as if, having that confidence somehow is what is going to protect their vineyards yeah. from yeah, the foxes. It, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, with self shore up yourself so that you can go forth and do the thing that you should be able yeah. to do. Right. Because he, the, the he character is always referred to by her as this strong, like, animal animal like right so you know she calls him a gazelle a young stag right bounding over mountains and stuff like that right and she's hiding right in the mountainside yeah yeah right well so it's almost Mm. like the hiding itself is one kind of a threat to the relationship and then another image for that threat are these foxes that are in wait 
Yeah. 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 And so you get those in parallel to each other to show that one is like the other. Well, and, and all of this book, all of Song of Songs is, is shot through with echoes of the Garden of Eden. And so when you imagine mm. um, Adam and Eve hiding from God there, something in the relationship has been ruptured and that's where they're hiding. So in, in this yeah. moment, if he's seeing her hiding and asking her to come out and to speak to him and show her face, maybe he's suspicious that there's something wrong. And we want almost a recapitulation of that. Wow. Interesting. So how does that relate to what this album is about? <laughs> well, we, we were kind of just alluding to it right there with, with the question of self and the collective, whether that's two or more individuals forming a collective. And then it gets really interesting because the Fox image becomes so playful and sweet at other times in their mm -hmm. discography. So like, I don't want to hold too hard onto the, carnivorous you know like nefarious thing because there's a there's a sweetness to it also i remember in doing some initial research that some translations make say jackals mm -hmm. not foxes mm -hmm. I, I i think foxes is almost universally understood to be the word but jackals are typically in a lot of folklore even more nefarious than foxes yeah. so but there's an interesting they, they both yeah. show up as kinds of trickster figures don't they yes yes they do yeah, yeah definitely Definitely. Yeah. I looked it up and I was curious. Uh, I, I guess foxes are actually omnivores. So, I mean, they eat a lot mm -hmm, of like mm -hmm. bugs and little critters and stuff. But they, like, if one was near a vineyard and it was desperate and couldn't find like a, an egg or a bird to eat, they'd probably chomp on some grapes. Sure. Mm. Sure. Yeah. No, that's true. But that adds um, another layer to it, too. That like if that's not its normal food source, that like if it's desperate and hungry, that mm -hmm. makes it a very different kind of animal to encounter. Exactly. Wow. Hmm. So I, th I think that'll reveal itself as we go through time. It, it will, especially when we get to the Soviet. Yeah. And then I think, I think that there's still going to be some ambiguity when we get to that yeah. song. And then that may close out with carousels just because, and, and son of a widow, especially just like there, there's some nice closing feelings yes. to those last yeah. few tracks. So, so to put it plainly to me, what it seems like this album is about is that the narrator, Aaron, the voice of the album is in a relationship with a community of faith and that he is going through a breakup with that community. Mm. We talked about A to B Life being a breakup album about this particular relationship between one person and another person. And I think that Catch for Us the Foxes, as much of a leap forward in sound as it is, as much as you can tie it to the sound of Brother Sister and think of those as being kind of a sonic pair, I actually think it has as much to do with A to B Life as it does with Brother Sister. And you can draw a pretty clean Venn diagram and it's equally in both of those circles. Oh, Ooh. sure. And, and sometimes that's very direct in the lyrics it, that all of a sudden we drop into this section of lyrics that sound like they could have been from the A to B life sessions and just unused and pulled into this other project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so to me, I feel like having the foundation laid of A to B life, both for our conversations here, but also just as a listener, you can import that emotional backdrop into this to say, okay, I've walked away from that relationship. And in some sense, the church, whatever, 
biographically, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, exactly what church community right. he was participating in. And I'm not directly concerned with that. I mean, so there's yeah. this, this, you know, marvelously insightful book uh, that many of you probably know about called All the Clever Words and Pages that Paul Matthew Harrison, who's a friend of Aaron's, wrote sort of documenting their intertwining lives. We mentioned it some last season. I don't know if we ever directly credited him. Um, and that's got tons of insight into Aaron's actual biography. But this is not a show yeah. about biographical people so much as it's about the way that these works of art work on us. Land. Yeah. 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 And so it seems to me that the emotional landscape of A to B life forms the the playbook almost of another disappointment of trying to make a relationship work <laughs> and then seeing it fall apart. I think I, I completely agree with you. The only thing I would add is there is so many more layers of self doubt in it. Mm -hmm. So the question that you posited, Stephen, is what's wrong with me? I mean, timey up on timey gets you there with, you know, and, and several, other, if, if there's direct references to trigger warning suicide many times in this album and that's a real thing. Like, am I what's wrong? Yeah. Should this be a fulfilling thing? This community that I feel isn't correct for me. Am I the problem? And I think that this is one of the reasons why me without you resonates so much with people who consider themselves ex-evangelicals and deconstructing yeah. and all this stuff. It's because, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, have had bad experiences, very bad experiences with a evangelical church or something like that, yeah. you know, where they felt ostracized, right? They felt alone, right, in, mm -hmm. in their church community. Um and, uh, yeah. you know, and I think that that that's one of the reasons why the band resonates so, so well with uh, so many of those folks, myself included, <laughs> you know. Sure, yeah. sure. Well, and actually, to, to even further pick up from the foundation that you were laying down there, Stephen, of coming to this from A to B life. In a sense, you could interpret some of this self-doubt and this wish for a communal feeling and, and, and the unrest grappling with all of that is like a I messed up in this relationship and part of that was a flawed way of thinking about faith what I thought was the correct way to do things and that led me to such heartbreak and sorrow and harming another person and the shame of harming that other person I don't know which I should feel more sorry for is a line that still rings so yeah. true mm -hmm. yeah. to me and I, I I really think there's something to that of like who made the bigger mistake, me or the church for telling me to be this way or me for interpreting what the church was saying incorrectly mm -hmm. or all of the above? <laughs> yeah. Let right. me just read. Um, this is a this is a direct journal entry from Aaron. This is in all the clever words on pages. This is from March 28, 2003. So this would have been after. A to B life was completed. They had already probably done a bunch of performances for it, probably in the midst yep. of the time that they are working on Catch Rest the Foxes, just to show how much the life experience that informed the production of these albums is just a continuation from one to the next. So again, 2003, 
Aaron writes, I asked Amanda to marry me on Sunday at church. We were all singing I Need Thee Every Hour, which is a song I've always liked. So I gave her this ring I'd bought, a tiny pearl surrounded by lavender amethyst gems on pink gold. See, she wasn't even my girlfriend, so she was very surprised. She cried and said yes. The next night she called and she was crying again, but the sad crying. And when I'd asked if everything was all right, she said, no, it wasn't. We talked and she said she doesn't want to marry me right now. Good reasons I won't bore you with, but uh, it's been a confusing sort of week. Wow. So that's after A to B Life wow. concludes. Yeah. Right. Right. He's Wild. still involved in her life. They're, yeah. She yeah. Has, she's not his girlfriend right now. She's still, even despite everything we talked about last time, still she's standing next to him at church. They're singing a hymn together. Yeah. And he pulls out a ring and proposes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and we know that resonates with him at least for another three albums. Um, so. <laughs> so, so for his connection to this church being a point of um, both like energizing their relationship through its various phases, mm -hmm. but also on some level, I, I assume eventually causing the final rift that they did not end up getting married um, for the church to have been a catalyst for the end of that relationship for him to feel like, okay, well, I guess I'll lean into that now. That's what I've got. And for that to still turn up a disappointment right. is a whole other thing than just moving from one relationship full stop into something. Mm -hmm. at this much or thought about it much <laughs> you have any thoughts i have in yeah. times <laughs> mm -hmm. you dear listener cannot see what i'm holding up but you can either pull out your copy of this album if you've got a physical one laying around or do a google search catch rest of boxes and look at this um if you've got a larger form of the picture either a high-res digital photo or the vinyl album you can see some details better I don't need to analyze every square inch of this because Vasily Kavanov's art is very detailed. And so yeah, I, I just want to point out a, a couple of major features that are sort of obvious on first glance, but you have to stop and, and pay attention like you would at a gallery to sit and just let the art work on you. So first of all, you see like, but there's how many figures in this picture? Right. Uh, Human figures. First glance, yeah, two. I think so. Yeah. There are two, two people. Very obvious. Yeah. What do you notice about their kind of demeanor? Well, they seem to be wearing yeah. masks. One appears to be looking somewhat. Well, they both appear to be looking up. One on the right almost looks like they're looking above the other, and the other is looking almost at. Yeah, that's how I yeah. see it. One is taller than the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, their eyes are hard to make out. To me, the taller figure on the right 
looks like maybe it has its eyes closed. The shorter figure yeah. on the left looks like maybe its eyes are open and looking up to the taller one. Do you see that? I do. Mm, yeah, I do. yeah, yeah. The taller one on the right might be look. Maybe the eyes aren't closed, but they're definitely cast down. Yes. It, yeah. So perhaps they are crossing eye maybe lines. So. Um, what about the energy between them? What's happening between these two figures? There's not a lot of action for how much boogie we were talking about <laughs> earlier. It's, it, there, there's, they're almost static. Like there, there's not a lot of movement. I mean, unless you interpret this kind of expressionist style as movement. I mean, to me, they almost look like indigenous figures, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where they're wearing these masks. They seem to have each have some kind of like almost headdress or something. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. how, you know, and yeah, it's hard to make out like sort of if the bluish color is meant to be skin or clothing, clothing or... or right. Because the one on the left also seems to have like a number of other adornments or yeah um, exactly the word i was gonna say on them that the person on the right doesn't necessarily have but the person on the right also seems to be perhaps wearing a necklace of some kind unless that's their teeth i'm not entirely sure that it looks like a necklace to me i i thought i thought so too some sort of you said indigenous and now it makes me think of some of those collars that that you see in various cultures that are are quite Wide. I mean, it could yeah. it could be a, but, a wide collar. I mean, it could also be a necklace made of teeth. True. Yeah. But in any case, to me, to me, that looks like um, kind of a status symbol. Mm. I, it's 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 more heavily adorned, at least in that way. The other one has more going on on top of its head. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you zoom in and you really pay attention to to the one on the right, the thing on its head is a building. Well, so mm. that's where I was going is what if the bluish purple isn't skin, clothes, or adornment? What if this is a relief and that's something worn away and we're actually seeing past the initial oh. picture into something more? Yeah. Mm. So that's actually us seeing through like imagine this is a dirty window yeah. that had some art on it yeah. that these faces, these masks and the 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 white and tan colors are uh, uh, on front of the window and then this dirt oh, is worn away and what you're seeing through yeah. you're actually seeing through yeah 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 sort of a nighttime scene back there right yeah. exactly the, the thing that most stands out to me about what's on this figure on the right's head is is an architectural feature that looks like kind of a window there's like a lintel and a couple posts mm-hmm. but it, mm-hmm. it's like a it's a at least a second story window right it's not on the ground it's up there Right. Like it's very old. Like to me, I mean, like as a kid growing up watching Bible cartoons, like this looks like, you know, the kind of building you would see that like the ancient like, Near Eastern yeah, world. The cartoon the the cartoon depiction of like Isaac walks out of that yeah, building. Right. Like yeah. yeah. Something something like that. Or I mean, even if you just read like in the Exodus story about like putting the blood of the sure. lamb across the doorpost, like you've got to have some structure like that to make it work. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um so so that's interesting. There's architecture hanging out on that one's head. I actually think there's something like architecture happening over here too. And here's my theory why. So I'll zoom in a little bit more. I think this is actually some kind of tower that's on on the figure on the left. Um, yeah, where's the fish? Uh, it's, oh. it's, uh, it, 
that's a good question given the source there <laughs> i think i do i have found some tiny fish kind of hidden around here they're not as obvious on this sure. one um yeah, yeah. the reason i think this is a tower and not just a pointy hat is that in the middle somewhere and again for you all listening just just zoom in now to the top middle of the the image somewhere there's a couple places the word tower is actually scribbled in to mm. the, the backdrop of this picture mm. um and then and all of this is very conjectural because of course if you look down in the bottom right corner it says 1991 kavanaugh this is this is a painting that predates this album by 13 years so right vasily kavanaugh did not create this in response to listening to these songs and trying to come up with an image to fit it they chose this from the paintings that he had done but they surely chose it for a reason he seems like a pretty prolific artist and he would have had a lot of work yeah. for them an interesting detail if you if you look this is at least like the 2019 pressing of the vinyl album if any of you out there have that one uh great if not take my word for it but when you pull out <laughs> the sleeve what you get is the continuation of the title of the album from the song of songs that ruin our vineyard mm. and then you get oh, wow the, the pointy thing on top of one figure's head and then you turn it to the other side and you get our vineyards that are in bloom. You finish the statement and you get this object that is in a hand being offered in the middle of the picture. And so mm. this framing oh. attention is being drawn to what's on top of the head and then what's in the hand in the middle, both of which are these pointy looking images. So to me, initially yeah. that the thing that's, that's being offered from left to the right looks like a, like a ball that's on fire i mean that that yeah. rising image yeah. looks like something that's flaming but if you consider the word tower is sort of hidden in the backdrop of the middle of the picture and then and that the band sure. focused in on these two pointy objects on either side of the record sleeve um maybe they're both towers in which case if that's a tower perhaps this is the world or some some kind of surface that a tower would be built on um mm. Tower of Babel. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, again, like going back to the way that like things from the ancient world are depicted, the Tower of Babel usually shows up as some kind of spirally ziggurat or something. So yeah, right, right. Through that, um, and so you almost so to to go out on a limb here with this, you you maybe have something representing sort of a, I don't know how else to put it. Like this sort of represents like the nations of the earth. If you want to think of it like the Tower of Babel, this sort of represents mm, sure. the inner circle, whether it's Jerusalem or whether it's the church or whether it's whatever. To me, you have yeah. you have these different figures and you have this one that's sort of in a loftier position here with the build the, the, the old like architecture on its head. The shorter one making an offering sort of represents more of a, a broader perspective or whatever. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure that I'm reading too much into this because again, Kavanaugh did not create this to represent this album <laughs> but for whatever me without you saw in it i i want to put forward just as an invitation because we're not going to come back and talk about this album cover on every episode for you as a listener if you just want to spend time when you have a moment to listen to the record if you pull this out and look at it um i want to put forward the invitation to look at the figure on the left as perhaps representing the narrator of this album and the one on the right is perhaps representing the entity that he's in relation to and, mm. and let the dynamics of the sight lines and the gift offering and everything else play itself mm. out. Yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. 
we'll have to do a, a special bonus episode, wink, wink, uh, <laughs> digging in deeper with the Where's Waldo. Because, you know, I'm seeing like, is that the word West over oh, the left it figure might be. on the bottom? You can read it as yeah. West or Vest. Also, up here, uh, <laughs> there is what looks like coral coming out of the uh -huh. ear. And then there's birds on a leafy thing next to the coral. And so we have underwater yep. and up in the air imagery side by side. Um, is that a spaceship coming up in the yeah. middle above the right? right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And at the very top, it looks like a some kind of vehicle, and like <laughs> yeah, like a tractor, like a tractor yeah. or, or a tractor. And, yeah. and a cactus. There's definitely a cactus. <laughs> and a cactus. That is the yeah. only unambiguous thing about this picture is the cactus. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I know one thing, and that's one of those damned cacti. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. uh, yeah. concluding thoughts y'all want to share about this album before we jump into the individual songs i didn't say it at the top but i will agree this is not my favorite but it is the one with and we'll get to each song in particular but you know some standout songs oh, we didn't even talk about any standout songs you guys are really excited for oh all of them the more the more i get ready for yeah, the yeah. show i i'm so the more i'm like I was like, uh, "Leaf, Leaf is the throwaway track to me." No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was wrong. Yeah. Um, for for what uh, it's worth, I think yeah. uh, Michael Almquist, the band's manager, has gone on the record saying this mm -hmm. is his favorite of their album. He spends yes. every night of his life hearing them play, so that's got to be worth something, right? Yeah, it it has to be worth something. <laughs> yeah. uh, for me, I'm personally very excited for kind of the trio of Seven Sisters Soviet paper hanger like those yeah. three together just our gut yeah. punch start to yeah. finish and i yeah love it, i think so. paper hanger for me has always been standout my accident yeah. fair uh yep you know I, I think son of a widow um i mm. like was the first time i heard it i was like like very surprised and when i saw i remember when i saw them um on this tour and Aaron brought out an accordion for that track. I was like, what is happening right now? Yeah. Like, because I mean, yeah. now, like, that would not strike me as weird at all. But like, I don't know, in 2004 or five, whenever I saw them on this tour, I it just was something I had never seen before. I mean, that was a I, I'll just say, like, for those of you who were around and, and went to that tour, on the West Coast, I don't know if this was the entire country, but on the West Coast, they played with a band called The Snake That Crossed the Crown, which mm -hmm. you've not heard that band. Oh, my God. You need to listen to their first album, especially Mander Solace. It's an incredible record. Um, and it was just a really fun show because they um, the bands were like they each would like come out for some of each other's songs and like um uh, the snake across the crown actually has a song um, that that is that also references everything is beautiful and nothing hurt <laughs> the last track mm. um, on that album and I, I think I think it was that track they they had like toms like floor toms set up on the stage and like Aaron and and Mike and they all like came out and they were like hitting them and it was just it was really 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 cool 
Um, and I think the guys from Snake Across the Crown also came out and did something similar on some Me Without You songs too. But it was yeah, so cool. just a very, very one of my favorite tours uh, of theirs was the the tour supporting this this record. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can't wait, y'all. Yeah. Torches together, forward, hand in hand. <laughs> 